This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Tired of not getting a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hey, y'all, you're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders. It has been over a year since the January 6th insurrection on the Capitol. Almost a year since former President Donald Trump left office. A lot has clearly changed, but some things have not. Lunatic leftists are taking over our schools and radical socialists are taking over our country. And we're not going to let that happen. We're not going to let that happen. Hillary conceded. I never conceded. Donald Trump is still holding rallies. He is still making endorsements. He's like part kingmaker, part king in exile. I'll I'll put it this way. I think that the Republican Party is shaped more by Donald Trump putting out statements and making endorsements from Mar-a-Lago than pretty much anything that's happening in the Republican National Committee headquarters in Washington. That's McKay Coppins. He's a staff writer for The Atlantic. I called him up to talk about where the GOP and Trump stand now. And I also brought on one of McKay's colleagues, Van R. Newkirk II. He's a senior editor for The Atlantic, and he's also been covering this stuff for a while. I had so many questions for both of them about the state of the GOP. But my first question was, why does Donald Trump have so much staying power? I was looking back at, you know, January 6th, and it felt like there was this very brief moment in the wake of Trump's defeat when the party could have decisively broken with him, right? You had like... And they almost did for a day or two, right? Like Mitch McConnell was like, this is bad. For a little bit. (laughs) It seemed like, I mean, they didn't go, you know, it wasn't like a full repudiation of Trump and his presidency, but there was like a moment where it seemed like the Mitch McConnells of the world were just totally sick of dealing with him. And he had just lost not only the White House, but was, you know, partly responsible at least for the Republicans losing... Uh, the House and, you know, would eventually lose the Senate. And and it felt like the party and the kind of Republican-aligned media outlets could have gotten together and decided we're moving on from this guy. And that just did not happen. I saw the same thing happen, but I kept saying, why? The GOP never has any shortage of people who want to run for president. They never have any shortage of charismatic politicians. They could have easily said, all right, the next guy is Ted Cruz or whoever. They didn't do that? Why? I think it's even weirder because look at the last time the Republicans suffered this kind of electoral wipeout. And it it was in 2012 when they lost a presidential race Mm -hmm. and they lost, you know, up and down the ticket across the country. Um, And what happened then was kind of the normal thing that happens when a party loses an election, which is there was this period of widespread recriminations and soul searching and people yeah. jockeying to be the next guy the tail goes between the legs you sit quietly for a exactly. while yeah. you know <laughs> Mitt Romney kind of did the like respectable you know presidential loser thing and like kind of laid low for a while and everybody took turns like piling on and saying what they thought the party needed to become to win in the future and that didn't happen and and part of the reason is because Donald Trump had so successfully laid the groundwork in the run-up to this election that with this narrative that whether or not he actually won, he really won. And 
and the the leaders of yeah. the Republican Party, as it turned out, by and large, were not willing to challenge that narrative. Van, how much does that surprise you? The chokehold that Trump still has on his party, even as he is, as McKay said, part keen in exile. It doesn't surprise me at all. I think if you look at what happened over the last four or five years, the tactics that they put in place in terms of bullying people, in terms of being that kingmaker, in terms of fostering uh, real movement on the ground, that's what's paying off today for them. So you look at how the party operates now. It's not Trump being on the outside, pulling the party in his direction. He actually is kind of sitting in the in the middle almost as people who became empowered during his presidency go further. Well, and that's what I want to ask you both about, because as much as the GOP still seems like Donald Trump's party, there are some very clear areas where it's almost left him behind and moved even further from where he was. Perhaps the biggest example of that is the dialogue around vaccines on the right. Donald Trump has been outspoken amongst the GOP faithful and still preaching the good about vaccines, urging folks to get boosters. And he's been booed by some of his own fans for saying that. Take the vaccines. I did it. It's good. Take the vaccines. But you got. No, that's okay. That's all right. You got your freedoms. Um, How much of that shift is a real thing? Like the party's still kind of following Trump, but in some ways getting even more fringe than Trump himself. Well, from a science perspective, you look at what happened with vaccines. We, as a country, as a world, achieved a scientific breakthrough that, you know, we're going to look back in time and and think of as something akin to, I don't know, the space race. Uh, And and it happened with funding that he approved. Trump helped do that. (laughs) Like Trump got stuff together to push for those vaccines very quickly. And there is no way... There is not a snowball's chance that this guy is not going to take credit for that. Yeah. Almost at the outset, kind of put him at odds with lots of elements of the party. I think even even from the beginning, you could see the the vaccine hesitancy. You could see the, see the anti-vax messages. They were coming out as he was promoting vaccines as president. Yeah. So that's not really yeah. surprising now. But, you know, it, it does place him not as a as a vanguard anymore in the party. But But what I would say, though, that's funny about that is that, like, This is kind of the story of the Republican Party for the last like 20 years, which is and and maybe even longer, which is that the leaders of the Republican Party will kind of flirt with or enable or, uh, you know, allow some kind of fringe element in their party to operate unchallenged. Right. But, you know, what always happens in the Republican Party is that these leaders will kind of flirt with this fringe element and then the fringe element gets way bigger and way more aggressive and uh. in, in some respects sort of takes over the party and then leaders kind of realize that they don't have control over it anymore. They can't harness it for their own purposes. Save for the vaccines, are there other areas where the current GOP has also moved away from Trump and gone further right? Uh, you know, I, I guess like one one thing that I've been watching with some interest is the rise of w- what is called the national conservatism, which is basically the nationalist movement that Trump helped launch. So it's kind of this right wing ideological movement that is sort of Trumpism minus Trump. Um, and 
I think that when Trump ran for president in 2016, he talked a big game about these kind of economic populist ideas that he was going to impose. And then in a lot of ways, once he became president, he sort of governed like a an old school, you know, fiscal conservative with, you know, big corporate tax breaks and uh, deregulation and things like that. I'm interested to see how much that movement gains traction in the Republican Party and whether it goes even further than Trump did as president. And I think if you look at, you know, we're thinking about democracy, obviously, um, and Trump has had and endorsed a a lot of things that are uh, essentially would rule out democracy. But it's clear that from his endorsement of, say, the Voter Fraud Commission to his challenge of the 2020 election, all that was self-interest, right? He, he used whatever argument he could that would give him any chance or would give him an electoral advantage. What you see now on the right is people who are taking up those arguments and putting them into an actual coherent political theory. And you have people who are not just in, you know, in, in service of electing a Republican president, who are putting it out in their grassroots organizing and work. Things like, you know, the disdain for for popular sovereignty generally. Um, and I think you have to distinguish their movement, their energy from from his, which was, you know, there was not necessarily a guiding principle to anything Trump did with the elections aside from Trump needs to win. And mm-hmm. now you've got an actual philosophy, a group of folks who are by nature skeptical of mass democracy. And I think mm. they are moving things forward at a state level that we haven't really taken a whole lot of notice of that that are really going to affect uh, elections in 2022 and 2024. Coming up, how the GOP has gone local. Stick around. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Here's a familiar situation. You have a question about your credit card. You call the number for help and can't get a hold of anyone. If only you had a Discover card. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right, a real person. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing, backpacking, and another outdoor thing that rhymes with backpacking. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways you can opt outside. This message comes from the run-through with Vogue. Listen as designers, Vogue editors, and industry icons like Erica Badu and Florence Pugh have in-depth conversations about fashion and culture. New episodes are released each Thursday wherever you get your podcasts. One big development since Trump has left office, at least in the GOP, is how a lot of that conservative and far-right energy has gone local. There's been a groundswell of energy on the right uh, for the last several months to get a foothold in local and county politics across the country uh, and to be in positions of power locally to potentially, they think, decide an election 2024. Can you tell us what's going on there 
and when it started. So, I mean, you just said 2024, but our first test is going to be 2022. So uh, we've got a couple things happening. Obviously, uh, states put out their uh, new congressional maps after the last round of redistricting and the new census. And there are some pretty heavy, pretty durable Republican favoring gerrymanders that all but ensure some level of advantage going into 2022. So that's one thing. And that was done kind of hand in hand with efforts that were taken right after the 2020 election by Republican state and local officials to give them much more power over elections laws going forward. So now lots of states have passed laws that give uh, elections officials more authority to overturn results or to challenge results. A lot of these small tweaks of where polling places are, of how local ballot access laws work, of how and where you can give water to people at the polls, how you can provide language assistance to people or can't. Those things, we're going to get a real test run of them. And I guess the concern for Democrats is, you know, that test run is going to put people in office. Totally. So, McKay, I want to talk about where this newest push to go local started. I mean, historically, the GOP has always been better on local politics. They understand the power of it and they take it seriously in a way that Democrats often do not. But I've read some reporting that this newest push to go local uh, comes from Steve Bannon, former aide and strategist to Donald Trump. Um, He has endorsed what's called the quote unquote precinct strategy on his podcast Do all roads in this regard lead back to Bannon, at least right now? Well, Steve Bannon would certainly probably want us to believe that. He he is kind of a master (laughs) of taking credit for uh, the dark arts of Trumpian politics. That said, I think that Bannon and uh, other Trump allies, Trump-aligned strategists, have really honed in on this idea that the way for the Republican Party to take over politics to win is not necessarily in winning over the most voters, right? It's not a 51% strategy. It's a uh, let's take control of the system that uh, oversees election strategy. You, you've seen this in, in Virginia, where I live. Uh, last year, a, a somebody who worked on Trump's legal team to try to overturn the 2020 election uh, mounted a primary challenge against a uh, Republican state House member and actually won uh, to join the state legislature. Um, in, in Georgia, you have somebody who is running against the current Secretary of State, uh, making this stolen election lie uh, central to their campaign. And so basically what you see is that Trump allies are trying to install themselves in positions where they can oversee the next presidential election. The fear is that having people like this who believe that the 2020 election is stolen and are willing to overturn an election result, now putting themselves in charge of the next uh, election is something that should worry people on both sides of the aisle who care about democracy. I want to get really granular for a second and just unpack what a quote-unquote overturning would look like. One, could it ever work? Could there ever be enough people to take over enough local seats to nullify an actual winner of an election? But if so, like, what does it look like and what are these folks on the ground planning to do? 
It's a big question, and I often feel like when I when I brainstorm this, I don't want to like put out a roadmap of things I've been thinking. Um, you don't want to give ideas to to, to yeah, future yeah. coup. Van Van McKay, I will surprise you by saying this, but uh, those folks are not listening to this podcast. <laughs> okay, I, I get it. I get it. Um, but I think the thing that you have to realize about elections, and the thing that Trump's folks were very good at realizing about elections is we just do not have a lot of real laws that guide and bind our elections. And also... Well, that was by design, right? By design. The one thing that I can still recall from, like, con law is, like, it's supposed to be decentralized. States and counties are in charge of their own stuff. And that was seen to be a benefit and the point for a very long time. Yeah, and and a lot of things that we think of as popular democracy were kind of grafted onto the old frame, which, you know, we did have state legislatures almost in every state controlled who was sent to Congress. Right. So and and controlled um, a lot of the sort of things that we pass off to voters now. And a lot of these, you know, laws allowing certain people to vote, they didn't overturn existing systems that gave a legislature a right to overturn or pick who it wanted to send as electors to for the president. And also, we, you don't really need a whole lot. You don't need a critical mass of people in every state to overturn election. You just need the right people in the right states. Mm-hmm. I mean, just yeah. just consider the example of Georgia in 2020, right? Let's say that the Secretary of State in Georgia, Republican, had instead of pushing back against and uh, rejecting Donald Trump's efforts to get him to throw out Biden votes or find new Trump votes, instead of of that, he, he was somebody who was more amenable to going along with that. You only need a handful of secretaries of state in closely contested battleground states to swing a, a, a close presidential election, right? You, you could say the same thing for state legislatures. State legislatures in a lot of states have a huge role in the administration and certification of election results in certain states. And so if you have, uh, if, if you have the right people or wrong people, depending on, on your view here, installed in a state legislature in a given battleground state, they could wreak a lot of havoc on elections. And so, uh, and, and this is, we're not even getting into, you know, the judicial possibilities where a judge could decide to throw out a bunch of votes on some technicality or uh, go along with a more narrow interpretation of who should be allowed to vote or or whatever. I mean, we saw a ton of these these lawsuits, legal challenges play out in 2020. Like Van said, this isn't a case where you need hundreds of people installed in the right jobs, uh, which would, I agree, be kind of an unlikely result. You just need a few people in a few battleground states willing to essentially subvert the will of their voters and uh and you could have you could have an election overturned yeah yeah what are these gop supporters who are currently going local and seeking to occupy these local election spots what are they saying or doing so far on the one hand there have been and van has reported on this there's been a lot of movement on uh restricting voter access right voter id laws and 
other efforts to essentially make it more difficult for likely Democratic voters to vote. But in terms of actually tampering with, uh, you know, election results, I don't think we've seen that much happen because we haven't seen that many elections since 2020 and since these people have taken power. Uh, I do agree with Van, though, that the midterm elections are going to be a huge test case for this. Up next, how voting protections are being eroded all across the country. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu with Black Twitter, A People's History from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, Black Twitter, A People's History tells the story of how black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, A People's History, premieres May 9th, streaming on Hulu. On Wildcard, the new podcast from NPR, you'll hear people like comedian Jenny Slate reflect on their lives. What is something you think about very differently today than you did 10 years ago? Dressing, like not salad dressing. I've always loved it and I'll never stop. (laughs) Dressing my body. That's all part of the new game show, Wildcard, only from NPR. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. So we can't talk about the breakdown of voting rights in this country without talking about a Supreme Court case that was decided almost a decade ago. Van, can you tell our listeners what happened there and why we're still seeing the effects of that ruling today? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm the Shelby County guy um, and I cannot get through a conversation without talking about <laughs> Shelby County. Yeah. But obviously in 2013, Shelby County versus Holder essentially got rid of one of the most important voting rights enforcement arms that the federal government has. Uh, Since 1965, or a little bit after 1965, uh, there has been a rule in place that allows the federal government to uh, have preemptive oversight of districts and of states that have proven to be problematic, we'll say. Yeah, so it's called preclearance. Yeah, preclearance, right? Basically, they're saying because these states and these areas in the country have a history of not doing right by marginalized voters, we have to preclear all of your election laws and make sure it's kosher before you can do it. But in 2013, with the Shelby case, that went away, right? Right. And so basically the only way for you to challenge anything whether it's an unfair, unfairly cited polling place or a voter ID law that comes out and says, oh, right, you know, black folks can't vote. The only way for you to challenge that is to go to court. And oftentimes the only way for you to challenge that is to go to court after the law has had some effect on voting. And you're going to courts that have been packed for a few years now by the GOP with conservative judges. Exactly. So essentially we went overnight in 2013 from a, from a setup where we had some real backstops like four people against bad actors to now where it's kind of the wild west and it's been that way for almost a decade speaking of this wild wild west idea like is what happened with Shelby is what happened with SCOTUS and the Voting Rights Act a thing that happened kind of separate and apart from the GOP or was all of that machination part of the GOP strategy as well? I think you take it all together. I think you, you look at agitation against the Voting Rights Act. That's been a conservative organizing principle for 50 years. The reason why Shelby County even challenged 
was part of a series of challenges uh, designed to eventually overturn the VRA. It's actually a lot of lot of uh, experts would say it's a wonder that it lasted that long. And you look mm-hmm. at the other part of uh, the VRA, you look at Section 2, which is the, the part that allows people to sue on their own. There's a lot of, a lot of experts who don't think that one's long for the world either. And, and conservatives yeah. have been organizing to get rid of Section 2 for a very long time. So then we have a GOP, as you both have laid out, that is getting really good at going local to possibly influence the midterms and 2024 uh, on the ground. They are also successfully pursuing voting laws that would probably restrict voting access for people who vote Democratic. What are Democrats doing, if anything, if all of this happens on the other side? <laughs> um, That's the question. <laughs> yeah. No, note both of our silence. I mean, obviously, Democrats are, are working on this, but... <laughs> Yeah, you know, Democrats on... You say obviously, but are they? Well, so uh, they're, they, some Democrats are working on it more uh, enthusiastically than others, right? Right now on Capitol Hill, Democrats are, are trying to uh, work out a, a piece of legislation that aims to protect voting rights. The likelihood of that passing, I think, is an open question. Van, do you have a, a good sense of where the state of play is on that that bill right now? Uh, it looks like there's a little more daylight for it than there was a couple weeks ago. You, 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 I saw a statement from uh, Senator Schumer that was m- more forceful than I've seen by leadership in a while and seemed to back uh, what, what I believe is a developing plan among Democrats to uh, favor rule changes similar to what we call budget reconciliation expressly for voting rights laws that would allow them to get around the filibuster. But where the rubber meets the road is if you do believe this to be a part of the gravest threat to democracy that America's seen in quite some time, and you go out there and you sell this voting rights bill as being part of the antidote to that, and then you can't get it out of committee, what's that say about the party? While you control both chambers, yeah. also, it's just, yeah, it's like, what's going on there? And this has been a line of criticism for a while of, of Democrats and, and President Biden, you know, that we've seen, which is that, like, you're talking about this as a crisis of democracy, that you see this rhetoric in, in a lot of their speeches and their statements and their tweets. But are you treating it like a true crisis of democracy, right? If democracy really hangs in the balance then shouldn't this be the absolute top priority? Some Democrats, I think, are treating it like a genuine crisis. Not everyone is. And there are a lot of, you know, crises to deal with right now, and that's part of the reason. But, uh, you know, I, I think that it's hard to instill the sense of urgency that you need to get a major piece of legislation pushed through like this unless there's a broad consensus that this is actually a crisis. Mm. What has surprised you both the most in where the GOP has headed since Donald Trump left the White House? I'm not surprised that there hasn't been some kind of mass, uh, you know, cathartic denunciation of Donald Trump, right? There hasn't been the scene that would be in the Aaron Sorkin movie where Donald Trump has been repudiated by Republican leaders. That hasn't happened, and I'm not surprised that hasn't happened. I'm a little surprised that 
the huge cast of Republicans who want to be president and are planning to run for president in 2024 haven't found more ways to undermine Trump or uh, move their voters past him. Because the the way that things stand now, if Donald Trump decides to run for president again in 2024, he's probably going to win the nomination again. And that, mm. you know, talk to Republican prospective pro- Republican presidential candidates behind the scenes off the record. And that's a nightmare scenario for all of them. But I haven't seen any kind of action at, at any level from anyone in the party to to try to you know, sideline him or move the party beyond him. And I'm a little surprised that hasn't started. Okay. Van, same question to you. Well, I think I'd say I'm surprised that they haven't taken some things further, Um, especially when we're talking about uh, measures to curtail democracy or whatever, whatever. I think there are the lesson of the last couple of years has been kind of that might makes right and that you can make up your own laws. And they've actually seemed to be a little more reluctant than I expected to make up their own laws in some cases. And I think uh, maybe that's just somewhat being chastened after the last year and and losing some steam with the pandemic. But actually, to me, the lesson has been that the floor is kind of wide open for that kind of strategy. And if they want it, they can kind of have it. We're going to leave it there. Van McKay, thank you both so much for this chat. I learned a lot, and I'm sure our listeners did as well. Listeners, check out their reporting over at TheAtlantic.com. Thanks, Sam. Thanks. Thanks again to my guests, Van R. Newkirk II, senior editor at The Atlantic, and McKay Coppins, staff writer at The Atlantic. And listeners, if you want to hear more about where we are one year after the insurrection, we have another episode for you from this past Friday. I was joined by two journalists to break down what exactly happened that day and if it might happen again. That is the latest episode in your feed wherever you get your podcasts. All right, this episode of It's Been a Minute was produced by Liam McBain and edited by Jordana Hochman. Listeners, come back here for more It's Been a Minute on Friday. For that episode, we want to hear from you sharing the best part of your week. Just record yourself and email that file to us at samsanders at npr.org. All right, till Friday, be good to yourselves. Thank you for listening. I'm Sam Sanders. We'll talk soon. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify, the global commerce platform that helps you sell and show up exactly the way you want to. Customize your online store to your style. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, one of the largest recipients of NIH funding. Dana-Farber scientists played a substantial role in developing more than half the cancer drugs approved by the FDA in the last five years, data through 2022. They've made one advanced cancer discovery after another for over 75 years. Dana-Farber Cancer Institute is changing lives everywhere. More at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. Hello, I'm Johnny O'Hanson, Jr. Join me each week on In Black America as we profile current and historically significant figures whose stories help illuminate life in black America. You don't want to miss the conversation. KUT Radio and In Black America are members of the NPR Network. Thanks for listening to In Black America.